Hi, folks. Before we get started, I wanted to say that we had a technical issue this week that led to Laura's recording being lost. Fortunately, I was able to recover it from a recording of our Skype call, and I cleaned it up as much as I could. But still, her side of things sounds a bit rough. Sorry for the weird-sounding audio, and thanks for listening. On with the show. Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I'm Reagan Kelly, and I am joined by my three awesome co-hosts this week. Hello, it's me, Nate Heininger. And I have to say, I did not know that I needed Spooky Boat Clue in my life. And now that I have Spooky Boat Clue, I can't believe I ever lived without it. I'm very excited to talk about this game. I'm Lauren Atch, and I'm very interested in what actual insurance adjusters do because I don't think it's all like this game. (laughs) I'm Shane and I usually hate this kind of game. (laughs) And this week we are talking about Return of the Obra Dinn by Lucas Pope. And this is a game that I, uh, first of all, we're a little late getting to it. This came out um, months ago. So for those of you who were, uh, you know, eagerly anticipating our coverage of this game, Sorry we got to it a little bit late, but, I mean, I wasn't expecting to like this game nearly as much as I did, and so I'm super glad that we decided to cover it on the show. Yeah, and we have to keep up our tradition of playing spooky games not in October, despite this game getting released in October. Yep. We must stick to our brand no matter what, guys. To be fair, this is about as close as we've ever gotten uh, (laughs) to playing a spooky game in October. We're here at the beginning of December. Normally... We're putting out spooky game episodes in like May. <laughs> so <laughs> usually you can track when we're going to cover a game by uh, uh, when some of our listeners play it, recommend it to us, and then later it goes on sale. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I picked this game up almost day one, but it sat in my uh, my Steam queue for kind of a while because uh, so we should probably start by talking a little bit about what type of game this is. If you missed out on this game uh, or you haven't, uh, you know, heard a bit about it, uh, it takes a little explanation. It's not the sort of game that I think, like like Shane said, it's not the sort of game that I usually find myself immediately gravitating towards. I'm the notoriously the puzzle dunce on this show, but this is an incredibly intricate, interesting really well-constructed puzzle game that is different than anything quite like it that I've ever played. Uh, Polygon said it was an Agatha Christie novel crossed with Sudoku. Um, you know, what if logic puzzles were just solving murders? It's a whodunit. Yeah, I would probably clarify it as a narrative puzzle game rather than yeah. as something like, uh, you know, we're not like matching three diamonds aboard the Obra Dinn to clear a line or something, obviously. I would mm-hmm. play that game, though. Let's be honest. There's just like an arcade it's, machine it's at not the bottom the of the Obra Dinn. Yeah. yeah. So this game is hard to explain. Could somebody give me their best shot? So you roll over to the Oprah Den and you start investigating different courses in order to figure out how everyone died because you're an insurance adjuster and you want to fill out this book. Yeah, you've been instructed by someone to go in and sort of complete the research, complete the investigation of who they were and how everyone on the boat died. And you have a magic pocket watch, which they call a momentum mortem. 
which is probably the only really cheesy thing in the whole game. Um, and and you basically click the pocket watch and you do 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 go back in time and you see their death in marvelous 3D. It's like a frozen picture. Uh, you hear their audio and you can wander around a frozen time stopped picture. Um, to see everything around them at the moment of their death. So we've got 60 people who were aboard the Obra Dinn, and we don't really know anything about the narrative of what happened to all 60 of those people, but presumably all 60 of them are dead or missing, and the boat begins completely empty with only a single corpse on the deck. And so the, the game is really masterful at revealing its story in this non-sequential way where every time you find a corpse, the first corpse you find is the only corpse that you can access on the ship. And you use your watch to see the moment of that person's death. And by viewing that moment, it identifies, first of all, you gain some information and then it, it reveals to you another corpse. So most of the time as you play through the game, each time you see the death of one person, it leads you to discover the death of another until you've discovered, I mean, over the course of the game, uh, the ultimate fate of all 60 of the crew. Rick and I play this together and I made a ton of Inception jokes because you kind of keep <laughs> Inception deeper and deeper into different memories. I know I kept having a hard time um, and I don't think any fault of the game, but like recognizing what part of the universe I was in, you know, um, there was like, okay, there's real time. And then there's like the memory of the body or the the moment of the body's death but then within that is the revelation of another corpse and that strings you to another one and they sort of all string together until you get zipped back into the real world <laughs> just like okay can i write in the book right now wait no i need a body before i can write in the book and we'll talk about the book in a minute and it just keeps popping around where, yeah, it's, I guess I didn't think about Inception, but that's basically right. You're just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into this murder mystery. Um, Corpseception. Mm-hmm. Corpseception. Perfect. It's very nonlinear. And the idea is that you're kind of zipping around and what you think you saw in one scene, later on you get a scene that was maybe right before it and it completely places it in a new context. Uh, it's a deductive mystery where you're seeing kind of you know, memento-like bits of something, and you have to piece together a larger narrative. So you have two main tools that let you do this job, and you kind of mentioned both of them, but the, the two tools that you have are your your pocket watch that lets you, anytime you discover a corpse or go back to the same corpse later, jump into the moment of its death, and then also the book. And the book is super important. You have this logbook of the ship that was sent to you by the mysterious person who sent you on this mission, um, and it's it tells the entire ch- story of the chat of the of the Obra Dinn, but only in outline form. So you know that there are like what was it eight chapters, and um, you know uh, when 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 you discover a corpse, you know where that falls within the book. So it'll fill in a page for you, so you know okay this person died in the middle of chapter five or something like that. Um, and it'll sketch all that in for you. Um, but you don't know in advance almost anything about the story. So you're, everything you're getting is nonlinear. Most of the time you're focusing on a st- single chapter at a time, but not even always. Sometimes you jump around and it's most of the time filling in the pages of the chapter in reverse order or in sort of scattershot random order. Um, it's 
it's extremely nonlinear. So at least half of the, the, the puzzle of the game is putting together the story of the Obra Dinn, you know, p- figuring out what happened first, then what, then what, what caused what. And the other big part of the story or puzzle rather is the sort of massive Sudoku puzzle of putting together uh, matching names to faces, matching fates, deaths to those names. And if a person killed another person, matching up who killed who. And that can be, it's it's like, I, I, I was reminded a lot of, uh, you know, in school, you get the, you sometimes have those logic puzzles that are like, John was wearing a blue shirt. The person wearing the red shirt ran faster than the person wearing the green shirt. The shortest person uh, had yellow hair. What did Sally have in her pockets? That kind of thing. You know, those sorts of puzzles. <laughs> yeah. I'm always absolute garbage at those. And this is the most complicated version of that type of puzzle I've ever seen. And yet the game is absolutely masterful in delivering its information to you and giving you enough hints to go on and enough uh, just uh, structure to it to make that a puzzle a 60 person puzzle like that possible to solve. That's what's most impressive about this game. It really is. And they, so you, for each person, you kind of already said it, but I think it, um, important to talk about, you know, you have to figure out who they are, how they died. And if it was killed by someone else, um, who killed them. But you know, one thing to know is you're always given essentially how they died because that's what you see every single time. Now, sometimes there's a little not bit true. of puzzle. Yeah, I know, <laughs> you I haven't know. finished the game. That is not true. Yep. So <laughs> that's fair. Okay. But at least the majority of Most the time, people, yes. you're given how they died. Um, and, and yeah, I understand that even that is, is a not correct blanket statement, but for the most part, the, the vast majority of the game, you're seeing the moment of their death, right? So you can at least go in and say, okay, this person was, you know, shot. Well, if you're lucky, you, you might be able to say this person was shot, but you don't know who this person is. So you can't then match that fate up to a name unless you can figure out, okay, the person who was, who looks like this, uh, is this name, and died in this way. And you all, might always have like two out of three of those pieces of information, but you have to do some deduction to fit it all together. Yeah. And you, so what, what's nice is that you don't have to answer all three of those at one moment. It's basically each one of those spots, whenever you find a body and you're done watching their scene, the book, what we've been talking about in the, that page, it shows the image of the, their face um, the Im- a little image of where their corpse was found on the boat, a little image of the scene that they're from, and then a part that says, who is this and how did they die? And you can go in and just say, okay, I don't know who this person is, so I'm not going to answer that. But I do know how they died, so I'll answer that. And that saves it in the book for you to go back later. So sometimes you'll be like, you'll get the name of someone from another scene. You'll go in to put in that name. And you're like, oh, man, I... This guy died like eight chapters ago and I saw how he died. I just figured out his name. Great. Now I'm going to go in and put in that little piece. It's like, well, I still don't know who the bastard that shot him was, but I hope to find that name later. And it is a lot of ridiculous like, oh, that's the guy with the mustache, right? Or that's the guy with the tattoos or it's all black and white. So you're not really doing colors of shirts, but like the rank within the ship. You can kind of tell their clothes from that. Um, a lot of moving pieces at the same time. Yeah. So for a game with it has this much detail, I was shocked that there were not, there were very few red herrings. And if they were red 
red herrings were there intentionally to be corrected later. Um, the red herrings was much like, oh, I thought this guy died this way, but it turns out that he's just extraordinarily lucky and six things happened to him. So the thing I thought killed him actually didn't kill him. Um, I think it's really interesting that there's a ton of little bits of information. You kind of will sweep through scenes and see things you've never seen before. Uh, something I really appreciated was uh, being able to uh, kind of include unknown midshipmen or unknown topmen. Like you see people doing things, you can kind of guess they're you know unknown officer. You can put placeholders that are even a little better than unknown, which for me made it a lot easier when I got back in later and had solved more things. It's it's a deduction puzzle where you won't learn everything directly. You know, they don't be like, Tim, Tim, you're about to die. <laughs> Tim dies. Like, that's not the oh, Tim. poor it's Tim died. Once or twice, it is great. <laughs> yeah. Um, Remember, Tim, me, your best friend from school, John? Let's John go. John is about oh. to shoot me? Thank you, oh, John. No. <laughs> nice striped shoes, Tim. That kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> that all other stewards wear. <laughs> yeah. So I do want to talk a little bit more about the the, the specific mechanics of how the deduction puzzle works because that is the meat of the game and it is fascinating but nate mentioned something about the graphics and i want to i want to make sure we don't forget to talk about it because it's what initially drew me to the game um nate mentioned it's black and white and that is true but it's a specific type of black and white graphics that you don't see very often um and it is one bit black and white dithered 3d graphics this is extraordinarily cool looking and unique and distinctive. And the very first time I saw a trailer for this game, it was... For our listeners, you may have to define the word dither. I will, yeah. But it's it's distinctive in that, like, I had not seen a game that looks like this before. Um, dithering is when you have... So think back to the early generations of computers. You'd usually... So for me, that means original Macintoshes um, that those were the first computers I ever interacted with as a person really. And on those original Macintoshes, they would have, they, they would have a black and white screen and I'm talking about black or white, no shades of gray, not even game boy style graphics. We're talking about pixels that are either black or white. And so in order to convey tone uh, things like shading, uh, they had to do dithering. Dithering is where you have sort of stipple patterns that represent different shades of gray. So maybe a dark gray might have uh, a pattern that involves lots of black pixels speckled with white pixels, or a light color of gray would be uh, a mostly white area speckled with some black pixels. And there are algorithms that can be used to translate uh, color images or you know black and white with shades of gray images into this uh, dithered style of graphics. Um, Dither graphics are super retro, but they're a retro aesthetic that doesn't get explored very often. You know, indie games so often fall back to like 16 or 8-bit uh, console graphics for their for their look. And almost nothing goes back to this era of PC or specifically Mac graphics. Like you just don't you just don't see this. And so I was really, really excited to see this. And also you never see that in motion. Those old computers had no way of doing 3D worlds with the level of detail we have here, but with those dithered graphics, this is a weird mashup of like beautifully rendered 3D worlds and characters with lots of detail, but rendered in this one bit dithered style that makes it feel like you're playing a hyper advanced version of like an old Mac adventure game or something like that. I thought this was visually super cool and it's what mostly drew me to this game until I, until I played it. I've never seen anything like this before. Yeah. It, 
this game is striking. There are some imagery and some scenes that really make you just kind of freeze for a moment and be like, wow, what am I looking at? Um, and they do just, it's just really good. Um, like the way they reveal it, you even know it's coming, but you're like, oh God, what am I going to see next? Because as they are playing, you know, we've been talking about, you see these memories, these moments of death. Well, it's basically, you're seeing the moment that the person died or like right around the moment that the person died. So, and it reveals that to you right after a black screen. So it just goes like, boom, and you're looking at it and it can be horrifying or grotesque or sad or like interesting. There's, I mean, there's 60, you know, scenes of this and every time they just, you can tell they put a lot of thought and a lot of effort into what is the first thing you're going to see once you come back from this like cutscene or cutscene is not the right word because it's just white text on black. Um, and it, so what are you going to look at first? And it, it's very stylized and almost like, you know, a cinematographer's mindset about what angle you're going to be standing at, what's going to be in front of you. It's really, really wild. And it's one of the more like gruesome parts of the game, but also um, absolutely one of the most memorable part, memorable parts of this game for me. Yeah. And I don't think I have to say this because it is a game about murder, but it's violent. It's not scary. It's not like there's jump scares or anything. But uh, it, you're going to see a lot of gore for a black and white game. Just a heads up. Yeah, for sure. Like a lot. Like like sprays of blood. And it's kind of like they were an R movie that turned to black and white to get it down to a PG-13 rating. Like that's the feel I get from some of <laughs> But always, the, the action is always frozen in a moment. You know, there's the present moment of the game where you're exploring the ship looking for corpses, basically. And that, you know, you see the the uh, ropes of the ship swaying in the breeze and so on. But when you're jumping into these moments of death, you're seeing an instant, like a flash freeze frame of the death. But of course, you can explore them in three dimensions. So you can go around and look behind things or look for details where you, you know, might not expect them, that kind of thing. But not, for example, like open doors, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. In those frozen moments, you can't affect the world at all. Uh, you can only look around and, uh, you know, and, uh, and move around. Which makes exploring the ship um, kind of a challenge. It's a very gated yeah. game. In many ways, and a lot of the gating is where you can get uh, physically within a memory or within the ship. Yeah, it's pretty cool, too, because so within each memory, it is you, you can only go into defined areas. Um, but if anyone was around in that area, whether they are witnessing or a part of the scene that, you know, sort of opened up in front of you, the death of this person, they're going to be there. And so a lot of the game is like you see someone come out of their room, you know, in one scene, which they're on one side of the ship. And then three or four, you know, deaths later, you see the next part of that scene and that person coming in and that little bit of information, like what room they came out of or who they were standing with when they first appeared, even though they had nothing to do with a body can be really, really important and very, very helpful for the deduction. Yeah, it can help you even just with like somebody who's completely uninvolved in the scene might be standing 
let's say, uh, inventing an example, near a set of tools that might identify what their job is, or they might be speaking with or working with another person unrelated to the the actual death that you're snapping back to, uh, but just their proximity to that other person might give you a hint about what their role is on the ship. Everything in every scene is a potential to deduce some new piece of information about someone present. Uh, and that can be that can be really, uh, really cool. But it also can mean you might need to go back to a scene several times to kind of recheck information or look for new inspiration or make new connections after you've identified something. Now you can go back and and see something you saw previously, but with some new context. Um, it's all interrelated in a really interesting and clever way. I think we've kind of explained what this game is, and that's hard enough with a game that's as complex as this. Um, but what I want without spoiling it, without yeah. spoiling it, we are talking around stuff, and whew, uh, we're going to have a spoiler break section, no question. But I want to really talk about like why this game worked, because what I think is so cool to me about this game is like everything on the face of it made me think that this game wouldn't work, or at least wouldn't work for me. Um, it's it's a super complicated game that ultimately consists of one massive puzzle. Uh, with over 60 uh, people. And, you know, if we're talking about like number of collecting a set number of pieces of information, each person who you need, you need to discover like four or five pieces of information about each of those 60 people. So it's this massive puzzle with a massive amount of information at play. And why does it work? It seems like it shouldn't because it's this incredibly fiendishly complicated thing and it's delivering its stuff in seemingly uh, random or at least certainly non-sequential order. It's so fiendishly complicated. Why does it work? And I have a couple of things that I think this game did super well that make it stand out or make it make it work where I think it otherwise wouldn't. But I don't know. What what do you guys think? What made this game work for you? Well, before we get into why it worked, I just do need to point out that it is a monstrous accomplishment that it worked this way. I know like the amount of information and all of the tailoring and the fine tuning. It's so and, intricate. Yeah. It's, it's wild. I, I really can't think uh, we haven't really, uh, you know, I hate to just like compare games to other games, but I really can't think of another game that is like this. That is so, I don't know. So complicated and so interwoven. And, but what we're about to talk about gives it to you in a way that is manageable. I'm sure there's some other crazy text-based or whatever, or otherwise puzzle games that are out there that are just, you know, that lean in on memorization or note-taking or like catching little bits of information. But this one is like, it's accessible. You know, I'm not really that great at puzzle games like this. I really enjoy puzzle games, Um, but I played, like you two played this together. I played this with my wife who is, uh, good at po- puzzle games. Like if you talk to Molly, that's her favorite thing to do in games. Um, but even despite like me not thinking I'm very good at games, I don't know. There was just something accessible about it. The yeah. information, I-, I think it's part of it is that it's all so bite-sized. Um, each scene is just like what? 15 seconds. And then you can go back to them. You can research everything. There's, sometimes a lot of people in it but often it's just a few people um 
I don't I think that's part of it. it. It's 60 people, but it's one at a time, right? Or maybe maybe two or three, but... This is really where I have a lot to say about this game because um, this, on the surface, looks a lot like, you know, a stylish modern adventure game. And adventure games are really something that I used to have... You know, I used to be absolutely down for adventure games. And over the last few years, that's really changed. I really used to love adventure games, especially when I was younger, because I, you know, in general, they were the genre for story games, you know, and I love story in games. So more than any other genre, adventure games depend on their story and their setting to create these like really cool single player experiences. Uh, But there's a lot of parts of adventure games that are absolutely not my thing anymore. Uh, And that's stuff like, um, you know, gating my progress with very specific puzzles, uh, getting stuck, uh, circling back between five different rooms, looking for the right pixel to click on uh, and stuff like that. And and so this game, um, you know, what I've seen of it so far, it really does appeal to me uh in in having kind of circumvented all of that like it doesn't have the uh you know sometimes fall flat pun based humor that uh most adventure games are trying to imitate from the old LucasArts games and they don't have uh a huge inventory uh to manage and like trying to figure out how to combine and recombine the different objects in the world and the objects that I could pick up uh you know and, and feeling like I'm missing out on that. So, and specifically with the with the gating, it, it, it there there's no piece of information that you can't progress until you find it. You know, there there's all sorts of information throughout this game that you need to collect in order to to solve the fates of the crew. But there's no point in the game where it's like, and if you haven't solved this particular person yet, you cannot progress any farther. It it always is. There's always some way to be making progress. Even if you are missing something that maybe might be important for one part of the game, there's other other things you can investigate to kind of uncover other stuff. There's, it never stops you with that. Something yeah, the- that really frustrates me about mystery novels when I read them is that it's usually one murder, maybe two max, um, and there's some kind of vast conspiracy that they have to keep it really interesting for you. Often toward the end, uh, they ask the detective how they solved it, and the answer is something like... Oh, in that scene with 50 other things happening, I saw one person's eyebrow twitch and therefore, or it's something that you have no way of knowing um, Mm. until someone reveals it. The fact that they did everything out of order made the overarching mystery of just how messed up the Oberdin gets over time. I mean, you know that the ship shows up with no one on it. There are 60 people. Um, most of these people do not survive. Um, although alive is an option in the menu. Uh, you may or may not grab it. I will say, um, also expired died of old age is one of the options, which, um, so you look through the list of death options and you're like, Oh, there is some hope for people on this ship. Um, I never thought it was unfair in that, uh, they were, you know, trying to, keep something to the very end. They dole, they parcel out information over the whole time. And I, one of the reasons we're being really careful about spoilers is fairly early on, there are some really big, great surprises. Um, You know, kind of when you open a new chapter in the book, you don't know what happens in that chapter. 
um, there's kind of a chapter and there's a series of somewhat related deaths. And yeah. they've got mysterious titles like The Doom or Unholy Captives. And you don't know what those mean until you unlock the first death in that chapter. And usually when you unlock a chapter, you're seeing the last moment of that chapter. And it's like a, a huge, what crazy. the, how did they get here? <laughs> how did this Something happen? went really, really wrong on this boat. Yeah, and it's great that um, it's sectioned so that each chapter gets those explosive moments. It's not like reading um, a a book where at the end you sit down with the detective and he spins out every single thing that ever happened. You know, it's not Sherlock Holmes. Uh, You get lots of aha moments throughout, which makes the game a lot more interesting than a lot of logic puzzles I do where everything suddenly fits at the end. Yeah, so I don't know if I have... So we're talking about the different ways that this game gets it right in order to make this incredibly fiendishly complicated thing work. And I guess what all of you guys are getting at, and I don't really have the proper vocabulary for this because I'm not a puzzle person, but just the just the sheer, like, they thought of everything nature of this puzzle, you know, is is probably the number one thing that makes this game successful. It's an incredibly intricate, intricate puzzle. And just it has so many different ways of delivering information to you and it, it's, I mean, it's just very, very, very impressive. There's lots of other things too, but that's probably the core of why this game works. Yeah. I have two other quick thoughts too. One, uh, as far as like accessibility goes, the puzzle never changes. You're answering who they are, how they died. And if they were killed by someone who killed them. So it's the information is provided to you in different ways, but you always have this same sort of like mindset, you know, you're always trying to gather the same sort of information. And that makes it more accessible where, you know, most big long puzzle games, it's kind of, you're constantly retraining your brain. Like, Oh, that's how this works. Not the case. This is one puzzle that you're constantly solving. Also, they do something that is really clever. And I think it's, 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 it's like a handout for this game, which is you're, you see a little, uh, like a little portrait of the person it's from a, a painting or a, a like a photo of the entire crew. And if you don't have enough information, like if the game has not provided you enough information where you could know this person's name, it's blurry. And that is such a gift to the player mm. because you can just sit there and say, oh, well, I, I, sh- I literally should not know this person's name yet. So I'm not even going to think about it because if they didn't do that, you would constantly be thinking like, oh, wait, is this that guy? Is this that guy? Is this that guy? But no, the fact that, you know, once they're not blurry, okay, I could know this person. I might not, but I could know this person's name is so huge for solving these that I think it changes the game entirely that it's there. And Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the big things that makes it accessible because now, you know, I could know this person's name. So if I want to take the time to rewatch the things, I could get it. And they rate the difficulty of once you oh, unblur yeah. someone, they they tell you how hard it should be. So you know it's got one little triangle that probably their name is called in the scene, and you should just go back and watch that scene and pick up on the thing you missed. I, I think something that I really appreciate as a puzzle person is that you can solve things different ways. If you don't get something uh, by information in the scene, you might look at the illustration, you might look at the manifest, you might start looking at a uh, kind of process of elimination. There are a lot of different ways to solve and you can back things and you 
every time you write three penciled in things and you get, or every time you guess three completely correctly, that every single part is correct, it'll write them in in ink and confirm. So it's a really great way if you've been guessing a lot to know which ones of your guesses were off and which ones are accurate. We used that a ton towards the end um, where we knew it was one of two people. We could put a name down, go through. If it didn't get marked, change it to the other person. Like that's not yeah. cheating. You have to do that. It's you, part of, like, you have to do it. It did make you me think, think it's cheating. If you're a puzzle person, you want to put stuff down there. Sure. But it's not, you have to do that or you will not finish this game. So everything you guys are talking about is sort of aspects of the interface of the game. And I think that's the one, I mean, gathering all that together, the the other thing, apart from just fiendishly like intricate and, and really smart puzzle design, the other thing that makes this game manageable is its interface. And there's so many little things. You guys call that a couple of things, like the way that it blurs the people you haven't identified yet and so on. But like a big part of how this game, a big part of this game is uh, watching a scene and then essentially taking notes. And some of that you probably will want to get out a piece of paper and actually write notes to yourself. But the game gives you a lot of different ways to track things yourself within the book. You must take notes. Right. You must. The The book is a masterpiece of interface design, just in terms of like interface. The interface is masterful. So as you're walking around, you can right click on anybody that you see in any scene and it will uh, try to show you their portrait. So there's a there's a whole uh, portrait of all of the crew on the Oberdin. It will match people to people on the portrait. And from there, you can jump straight into anything that you know about that person. So it's all cross-referenced almost completely automatically for you. So for example, if I've seen a person before, I can uh, go almost anywhere I see them, whether I'm looking at them in the book or whether I'm looking at them in a scene or at their corpse, I can essentially right-click on them, see every... Uh, Every past memory that I've seen them in, uh, I can uh, see where those took place on a map of the ship and in what order. So you'll see like arrows showing you like first they were in this scene and then later you saw them in this scene and then later you saw them in this scene. Um, You can uh, quickly jump from there to other information you have about them, like on the on the passenger manifest. Um, and it, it does all of this kind of collating or cross-referencing for you automatically. You always have to be the person to put in things like this this name, this death, this, uh, you know, maybe this murderer, that sort of thing. But it does a lot of the other work of keeping track of where, how these different scenes that you've seen play out, how they relate to each other is automatic. And we're talking about like managing what is essentially a... Um, 60 plus page book in the game, but it just in terms of the interface of like getting around in the book, it's very smart. So it has quick hot keys for things like jumping back to the index, paging forward and backward, opening and closing the book. All that stuff happens really smoothly. And so by the very quickly in the game, I found myself able to almost instantaneously pull up any information that I needed from the book without having to sort of futz with the interface. It's a brilliant in piece of interface design, even just in terms of like everything down to how the hotkeys work when you're managing your information in the book is like incredibly well thought out and natural and good. So I have to say interface design, this game is phenomenal. I want to caution that we're talking about a ton of moving parts. It doesn't mean that 
all of that complexity is necessary to solve every death. It might be used in one out of 60 deaths. It might be used in most of them. Uh, it just gives you a lot of options for different ways to solve, to track, to quit the game and come back and remember physically where the body is on the ship. Um, it, it gives a lot of help and support so that no matter how you're choosing to solve this particular murder, uh, the game will support. There are a couple little things that it does that bothered me that made it a little harder, like physically going and tracking down bodies, not being able to, um, you know, you can view kind of a path through, but you don't necessarily get um, reminders of the moment. There's a lot of little things, but I can't think of, those were very minor inconveniences for edge cases. Most of the time it worked very smoothly. Yeah. And I will say, so managing all those different things, it's basically like three buttons. There's, you know, space or click there's E and then there's tab. And this could just be a Nate problem, but there were some times when I'd be like, okay, I need to do the action. And I would do like click instead of E and then it would set off the watch. Mm, yeah. You know, and it would like begin the whole scene when I meant to just like look at the body or look at the person. Um, and so because it, it's only, it's like three buttons do a whole lot of things in different settings. Sometimes I would do something that I didn't mean to do. Um, I don't know. That could just be me. But part of me was like, I wish they had just more buttons just to do things. Anything this complicated, bit, it's going to be, you're going to run into challenges like that. And I, I did the same actually quite a lot. There, There's definitely times where you, you know, you click on somebody when you didn't mean to click on them and that starts a scene playing out. And then you maybe have to go back to the previous scene a little later or something. And that did happen to me too, but I never, I never got frustrated with the interface, which is a surprise considering how complicated it is. One thing I wish was included uh, was a marker of when you have solved a death on a particular page in pen, because towards the end, honestly, a lot of my notes were, Hey, we haven't solved unholy captives part four. We have to solve, you know, basically a reference to page numbers in the book. I understand why that is the case. I, I think that Lucas Pope was probably concerned about marking something off as done when you might need to revisit that scene for more information. Mm, and yeah. he didn't want to say there's nothing else here. Don't ever come back because you often keep revisiting stuff you've seen already. However, it does make towards the end game gets really sticky because you're going through a six page book trying to find the five pages not filled in. And that's when kind of, you know, I kept a side inventory. I took screenshots of the manifest so that I could look back and forth a little faster. Yeah. Um, it won't, it's not um, required, but I think that if you're not playing this in one sitting and I don't think you can, it was, it's more like a 10 hour game. It's on the longer side. Um, I think that the notes were really helpful to keep things moving. I didn't take good notes for the first three hours of this game. And then we solved, we unlocked a ton of memories and we had to keep going back to them because I didn't have anything written down. So if you do want to speed this up, write things down. Yeah. And particularly, uh, I've had a lot of situations where we would say, well, you know, we, we're pretty sure about this, but we're not a hundred percent sure about this. You know, let's say we, we think this person's name is John Smith, but it might also be Steve Smith or something. Um, there were a lot of times where we'd put that in, but take a note about it. Um, it, it it's, it's fine. I think it's important really to 
enter information into the book, even if you're not 100% certain about it, but use an actual piece of paper to take notes about like, okay, why do I know that? Or why am I not certain about it? What are you certain about? And what aren't you certain about? That kind of thing. It really helps so that if later on you're like, wait, this must not be right. Where did I find this information? It helps to know that stuff. We have not been taking notes. Mm, good luck, Nate. <laughs> yeah, we'll see um, how. We'll see it how. It just means goes. you're going to have to revisit stuff more. Like yeah. it, when you go back and you see something that's wrong, you're like, "Oh, I thought." Okay, one of the tips that I will say is sometimes you need to be a little bit racist or stereotypical. So at times I was like, "Oh, this guy clearly looks like he's not white. He's probably one of these two people." Um, and then eventually, occasionally, like ninety five percent. That was the correct thing to do. And literally twice, that was the exact wrong thing to do. Yeah, there were a couple of red herrings in there. I think, I don't know if those were intentionally dropped or what, but that was definitely like, like there were definitely some things that we, we made some assumptions based on people's appearances that didn't turn out to be correct. But most of the time. But most of the time, yeah. Yeah, like clothes matter, race, like short, languages short, spoken matter. Like Short game tip. Be racist, Lauren Ash. <laughs> <laughs> we actually had an argument about this right now. We're playing together, and I was like, "Mark this guy as the—he's the only person on the ship with like this characteristic. It's got to be this way. Like, this has got to be this person." And he was like, "You literally have no information about this character other than your assumptions based on the country he's from." And I was like, "That clearly is what the game wants us to do." Yeah, and in one case or again in a couple cases that was the correct thing to do so we got used to doing that and then we started so making that assumption backfired. and then in end game like two of those were wrong yeah so. yeah well it's clear that it yeah I, i'm messing with you because you have to do that in this game and they they make it obvious because they they list the country of origin for everyone on the boat too mm -hmm. and that is very very helpful and, and oftentimes for very obvious reasons yeah this somebody speaking russian with a scottish accent so there More is tips. a yeah, there's a principle in puzzle design that generally if they give you something, you're supposed to use it. Like I run puzzle hunts and then you look down and you're like, oh, I have semaphore. Chances are there's a semaphore puzzle. Um, they gave me Braille. There's probably a Braille puzzle. So they give you country of origin. They give you role on the ship, like midshipman, top shipman. If you don't know what those are on a ship, Google it because chances are there's going to be a hint that you don't know the, the tools. Book. It's in the yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, there's a glossary at the oh, back of the book, the book too. Right. Yeah. yeah, at the back of the book, it tells you. It was awesome. I went through and, uh, like, oh, what's a bosun? I forget what a bosun is. Oh, yeah, it's the one who handles, like, the money or. They got little know. whistles, right? <laughs> they all have uniforms, too, which helps a ton. And pay attention to what people are wearing. Even, even in and above uniforms, things like sailors have a variety of different sort of modes of attire, but officers, at the very least, have pretty set clothes. Hats. Yeah. And there's <laughs> other details I won't spoil, but like pay attention to the details of people's clothing because very often that ends up being very useful. Also, if they're carrying someone's food, who are they next to <laughs> when they're carrying food? You know, they're like they're everyone has a job or or they're a passenger and it's super helpful to figure out what their job is. And again, you can mark people as unknown officer, midshipmen. Um, unknown top men, that kind of stuff really helps later on. And, and I will say that, um, if you're a hundred percent, no hint whatsoever outside of these very big ones, um, hit the skip forward 32nd, but Lucas Pope is pointing people towards doom part one for a reason. 
Yeah, that's that's just, a very that's that's a great one because some of some of the ones that are most challenging uh, are 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 ones where it, so there are certain standard sorts of things that you expect to look for. Um, th- there are certain characters. How do I get this very I, just, vague? Just leave, it, just leave it there. Yeah, there are certain and... characters where it's very hard. Um, if you find wow, I, I don't know how it's even possible to find info about these guys. Look back to Doom Part One. It's pretty. It's pretty interesting. There's a lot of people in the Doom Part One, and it's a really, uh, really important chapter for some of the deduction, particularly for the late game. Um, so, oh, and and uh, Laura, you mentioned you had a particular guide that you wanted to call out that you thought was useful. Yeah. So after I finished the game, I, I went back in. Was we're looking through um, for a good walkthrough that wasn't spoilery. We suggested one for Grimvandango. I remember that I I love that that wasn't going to ruin your game experience if you yeah, scroll down yeah. and saw something. What was it? it was like an Invisiclues style thing where it would like for each puzzle it had different levels and you could opt into what how much of a hint you actually want. I love that when I'm playing a game like this. Yeah, this one's organized. Um, you can jump to you, know, you search for the chapter you're in and the part, and it will give you some hints. Um, in some cases, you know, I'll say they match the spoiler to the scene you're in. So sometimes it's saying like, "Oh, the hard thing is that it's an ambiguous death. There might be more than one way this person could have died." Um, other times they'll say, "Look to a former scene to find out who this person is." It's that kind of hint. It's very nice and vague. And so if you scroll through, um, even having not played for only 12 hours at this point or something, looking through, like I don't see anything that looks like a full, doesn't tell you any of the surprises or things that you want to keep them safe. The number one tip I would give to people uh, playing this game uh, is play with Laura. <laughs> Um, but which, uh, Laura and I played it together, uh, over Skype, which is something we hadn't really done before on a game like this, but this is a perfect game to play together with another person, um, because it helps to have, you know, one person kind of driving and another taking notes or to have two sets of, of eyes on a scene to notice details or two, I don't know, sets of intuitions to, uh, to kind of suss out in for what's important and what isn't really helped to play this with another person. If you don't have that option, I, I would sit think like a guide like what Laura is, we're going to have a link to this particular one in this, in the show notes that Laura is recommending, I think is, is a good, a good backup because I wouldn't let being a puzzle dunce put you off of this game. If you can avoid it, I probably wouldn't have gotten this far. Um, because I, I am always hesitant to look for hints or tips in games like this. I feel like I'm going to ruin my own experience or something. I, if if you feel that way, um, first of all, try to play with somebody else. But if that isn't possible, still try to play this game. I think it's really worth playing, even if you have to dip into the hint, uh, you know, bucket once every now and then. Um, play this game anyway. It's really cool. Yeah, play this game. It's tight. <laughs> So we are going to have a spoiler break segment at the end of this episode where we're going to talk a little bit about uh, surprising, interesting reveals or favorite sort of puzzle moments from the game. Uh, So stick around after our uh, What's Making You Happy This Week segment if you would like to listen in on some spoilers if you've already played Obradin. But before we get to those spoilers, Shane, what's making you happy this week? Well, I uh, finally bit the bullet on a game that I've been meaning to play on PSVR for a while because it went on sale. Um, and I'm really, really glad I did. Uh, this is a game called Ultra Wings. 
and it's really it's a incredibly fun little um flight simulator in a lot of ways it's inspired by pilot wings which is a game i've never really played but i I think reagan you tried it out on one of the handheld versions but uh i really just wanted the experience of a flight simulator in vr because i felt like that'd be pretty fun you know it's a it's a cool thing to do in vr as something i'll never do in the real world uh so uh, when it went on sale for about eight bucks, I jumped on it, and I've been really, really enjoying this game. Um, you start off with uh, a little ultralight, and you are on this little island, right? It's part of a series, like a chain of uh, of just a few little small tropical islands, and there's like, you know, the scenery is really cool. There's like a, a island with a volcano, and there's a island with a huge colossus of roads a style statue and and stuff like that um and you kind of advance through this open it's basically an open world game you kind of take off in your little ultralight and uh well actually really i'll start from the beginning you start off in an office uh with a little ancient macintosh computer and you you put a diskette into it and that's your save game oh cute then you have to work long you have to work long enough to be able to afford pilot lessons and then after you get pilot lessons you have to find <laughs> someone to go in with a, on a garage with you and you know having a plane is expensive so absolutely two or three years of gameplay oh yeah, yeah. Well, this is a lot cheaper seven bucks you know for potentially four planes <laughs> I've, I've really haven't unlocked them all yet uh, but yeah, so the, the, the game starts off, uh, you know, there's a lot of little missions you can do, uh, to get cash. Uh, and then in the more open world mode, you can fly to all these different islands and the islands ha- all have like one or two air strips on them, uh, where you can land and you can buy the air strips and buying the air strips will let you unlock, uh, more missions and more planes. Um, so far I've only unlocked two of the planes. The first is the ultralight and the ultralight is, uh, really fun. It's a, like an easy to fly, uh, kind of slow plane, but you can you can do a lot of like uh, you know practice in that. Uh, and then the second one you unlock is a huge blast. Uh, it's a glider that has like a like a, a rocket booster on it. So Ooh. normally, a lot of people learning to fly will will practice in a glider where you get towed up to up to speed by a plane and then you glide down. Uh, this is a glider, but it has like a rocket booster on it. And you can, if you're firing that rocket booster, you can basically go straight up with this thing. <laughs> and um, the the cool thing about it is like, you know, the, the this glider is pretty fun and maneuverable um, to the point where like you really can, you know, have some roller coaster feels uh, in it doing like dives and, and tight turns and stuff. Uh, but it has so little fuel. You can fire the booster like three times and then trying to like manage the fuel to like get from one island to another in the glider is pretty neat. Um, it has a lot of um, different kinds of mini game type missions. Most of them are real hits for me. Like there's a uh, there's there's one where you just try and land, uh, which is a challenge in and of itself. There's one where you are running a course uh, there's like a time trial. There is the one I've liked the best is a uh, photo challenge where it basically shows you certain landmarks and you have to fly over and snap pictures of them. 
and the the variety of the planes kind of shows up in a lot of this too because in in the photo mode for example in the ultralight you have like this tablet and you can like pick it up and take a lean over and like take a picture at any angle with the tablet uh but in the glider the tablet is replaced by like a control panel and it only takes photos straight down so it's kind of a different challenge there and kind of learning you know where these different landmarks are and and examining the island and then plotting a course between these landmarks in something like a glider uh, where you're trying to manage your fuel. Uh, that's a fun challenge. It's really neat. And the the scenery is really neat. The look of the game has this sort of lo-fi feel to it. Like you're, you're, um, you're flying over trees that are basically like a little polygonal diamond shape, <laughs> stuff like that. So if you go really low, you're seeing, uh, you know, you're, you're not seeing a lot of detail, but it actually... Um, it kind of compensates that by having uh, a really, really good uh, draw distance and then just a lot going on. There's like other planes flying around you. There's boats. uh, There's some birds. uh, The islands have a lot of like little things that you can fly down and see like. So, yeah, if if you are interested in kind of, you know, trying out these different airplanes and and really feeling the the sensation of flight um piloting multiple aircraft uh trying different missions in an open world uh it is absolutely worth your time the normal price on it is about 25 bucks uh from my experience with this game i am you know if that sounds like it's right up your alley probably worth it um if you're more on the fence they've started putting it on sale every now and then and i got it for eight bucks so i definitely recommend it if you can grab it at that price even if you're on the fence i'm always looking for psvr games that are played sitting down like there's there's a lot of these sort of uh, psvr games where they're attempting to do something that is kind of like room scale vr but not things like um job simulator or um what's the other one um uh, super hot, awesome games, but like PSVR isn't really well suited to those types of games because it can't handle you moving around very much with your actual body. It's great at simulating you looking around, but not so good at you moving around in the space very much at all. So the games that I've had the best experience with are games like that, where you're mostly sitting down, um, but still kind of immersed in a 3d world. And something like an airplane is the perfect example of that. You're not getting up out of that cockpit, but you have all this range of movement, just by flying around. So that sounds super, super fun. I can't wait to give that a try. Yeah, it really plays to the strength of, of PSVR. I will say one critique of the game uh, on the way out, and that is that it has this balloon popping mission type where they give you a pistol and you shoot balloons from the cockpit. <laughs> uh, and that sounds awesome, but it kind of sucks. Oh, too bad. <laughs> that does sound awesome. Oh, well. Well, um, Laura, what's making you happy this week? So for something completely different, I uh, have kind of by force been trying to get to the Christmas spirit. I'm not uh, exactly a Grinch, but I was at a professional children's choir. So like I get very tired very quick of Christmas music and Christmas tree lightings and parades are always like I, I look at those and I remember like waking mm-hmm. up at 4 a.m. So it, it's always um you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm anti-holiday. I'm just uh, a little less into it than uh, most, but I am um, going to be moving from my beloved Chicago relatively soon, and uh, Chicago really gets into Christmas season. So I uh, enlisted a friend to, you know, she dragged me to a pop-up cheesy holiday bar, piano bar, um, where it was a mix of, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody and then like 
Silent Night, that kind of weird like whiplash where you're going back and forth between old standards and uh, you know someone trying to play sh- Slim Shady on a piano. Mm. Um, and then the next, you know, we had a day off to recover from that. And then the next day, um, I went to uh, the Music Box Theater, which is a 1929 like 700 foot uh, seat theater. Um, and they did a sing-along Sound of Music. And that's lovely. It was the second week of doing it. They usually have done this. They've done it for years. They do it over Thanksgiving, and I'm always out of town. This year, they did a second weekend, and oh my god, there is a costume contest. There's a lot of, you know, I, I someone in front of me in the bathroom line, and there's a huge bathroom line. <laughs> for those bathroom as you might expect to sing along sound of music was dressed like the Baroness. And I told her she looked pretty. She turned around and hissed at me and I didn't know what was going on. And it turns out it's like a Rocky horror thing where whenever the Baroness walks on screen, everyone's supposed to hiss. Um, huh. But she just kind of like this grown woman just turned around and was like <laughs> in my face. And I freaked out. Um, it was delightful. Um, the music box is Kind of an institution. Their big thing is they do like a double feature of um, It's a Wonderful Life and White Christmas and like wow. Santa comes and like everyone goes crazy. But the way they ramp up to that is with the Sound of Music. And, you know, um, you got little cards that you hold up question marks during how do you solve a problem like Rhea. So there's that kind of like, it's not quite as rock horror. You're not throwing stuff at the screen. But um, I think the thing that made me happy ultimately was that a woman dressed up like uncle max and won the, the adult costume challenge and like kind of like cross-dressing uncle max um also that uh two nuns showed up and they called themselves uh, mother inferior and mother posterior and they kept getting like a lot of bad puns you know, people groups dressed up as all the different parts of my favorite things and um there was a whole like slew of kids. There was like a three-year-old who was dressed as um, like a little Austrian boy, and he didn't know who he was. And so the guy was just like, "Let's just say you're Kurt." Aww. Um, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> you don't have to be. I haven't seen that movie in years. I was surprised to be like, "Oh, it's actually a good movie." But um, I would suggest like going out and finding something equally cheesy that you don't think is going to be your thing. Just having an open mind because. Um, I am not a person who would normally go to a pop-up piano bar uh, called the Reindeer Lounge, but <laughs> that and Sound of Music were both really fun. It's fun to be silly and stupid sometimes, especially around holidays. It really sounds like the perfect holiday uh, holiday spirit thing. That sounds it's amazing. Holiday spirit. It's great. So that's awesome. The thing that's making me happy this week I, I've said before in this podcast that I am a real, so I'm, I'm the puzzle dunce on this show, but I'm also really, really wimpy about horror games, like really wimpy about them. And usually if a game has sort of strong horror elements, I'll find myself getting, uh, well, basically what I fall into is that I get into this, this thing where, you know, if a game gives you all these tools about like hiding or peeking out from behind corners or, uh, you know, there's, there's all this scene setting involving lots of scary stuff that might potentially pop out at you. I find myself just inching my way through the game, trying to constantly, like, I guess I'm almost sort of RPing it a little bit where I, I, I'm, you know, I, I get very emotionally freaked out by the setting and find myself just making no progress because I'm constantly just like inching forward, inching forward, 
inching forward, expecting something to jump out at me. And then something finally does. And, you know, it just takes forever. Um, and so I just, I just don't, don't really play those games very well and haven't really enjoyed them. But this week, the latest round of PS Plus games came out, and one of them was Soma. And this is actually a game that I've previously bounced off of before for exactly that reason. I couldn't get past the first level or so because I started having this experience that I have with horror games where I just find myself making no progress, inching forward glacially, constantly feeling frazzled by it and not enjoying it. I decided, you know what? I need to see more of this game. And I decided to try a new approach. And I will highly recommend this approach for people who previously have found you don't like horror games. So my new approach to horror games is that I play uh, as a completely oblivious idiot and who, who does not notice that anything horrific is going on around him. And this has made the game completely playable for me. <laughs> so my, so now in, in when something scary is going on in the, in this game, I thought I've decided, okay, I'm just going to charge right forward, regardless of what horrible, scary things are going on and, and play it as if it wasn't scary at all, ignoring all of that stuff. And then when the creature or whatever it is, that is, you know, the, the source of the, the spooks in the game uh, eventually does appear, uh, I will just immediately die. And I recommend this because first of all, in, in a horror game, uh, sometimes the, the death animations are really fun and interesting. That's part of the game that you should find a way to appreciate. They're, they're fun. And if you're constantly worrying that you're going to die in one of these games, um, then, you know, that has for me at least been reducing the experience. Uh, but, but when I, uh, when I decided, okay, now I, I'm going to not care. I'm going to proceed directly forward and immediately die every time there's something scary. And then I'll load back to whatever the last save was and then try it again. Then I'm going in with the knowledge of like, okay, there's something scary here. I no longer need to be surprised by it. Uh, I can maybe, and now I know what it, what it's possible for that creature or whatever to do. I know what's going to happen. I know what I need to avoid. Uh, and now I can play it more just like a standard narrative game. So uh, my thing that's making me happy this week is charging directly into danger and immediately dying. Highly recommend that approach to horror games if you're somebody who uh, who's had trouble with them in the past, because by letting go of of the atmosphere of the game and not feeling like I needed to use any of the tools that it gives you for inching forward or being careful, just blindly stumble into danger constantly throughout the game. I found, Oh, now I actually really enjoy this game. So I'm really enjoying playing Soma, uh, just as a straight up narrative adventure, uh, and not worrying so much about all of the brutal deaths and the weird gore and the glitchy horror aesthetic, um, you know, highly recommend that if you had trouble with horror games in the past, as I have. That's a very Reagan approach to horror games, and I'm really into it. I'm I downloaded that. I haven't played it yet, so maybe it's, I'll. It's good. I'd like to cover it on this yeah. show. It's been requested by some of our listeners in the past, um, and I well, have always either avoided it or I did bounce off it a little bit when I first tried it. So, but it's got a really good story. Yeah, if it's a scary game, then you know, go ahead and slate it up for March, April, maybe. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> our tradition. <laughs> yep. Uh, so for myself, a lot of things came together this weekend. Um, a a uh, the stars aligned, or the the cosmos aligned, because one, I have been 
talking and thinking and looking at upgrading my TV for a very long time. And oh, I yeah. I finally did so. So nice. your boy is now playing in a crystal clear 4K. Overwatch has never looked better. Mm. Um, and even though I have a not a PS Pro, but still, it is a significant upgrade. But also... You know, the biggest Nintendo Switch release of the weekend, one of my favorite uh, franchises, a game I've been looking forward to for a long time. I know everyone else has. I've, everyone's been playing it all weekend. Katamari Damacy. Super Smash Brothers. <laughs> Katamari Damacy Reroll came out. Uh, for longtime listeners of the show, Katamari is one of my favorite games. And when I got the Switch... Like one of my first thoughts, and and I think I've said it on this show oh, yeah. multiple times. Multiple times, for sure. <laughs> is that Katamari has got to be on the Switch. It's the perfect, it's, a, it's perfect. And I'm here to tell you, it is. Uh, it's awesome. great. It's beautiful HD. I mean, it's still, it's the same game, but it sounds great. It looks great. It's fun. Uh, it's a great way to break in my new TV. I'll get to Red Dead eventually. I'll get to all these other actual games. I've been mostly watching Star Trek. Deep Space Nine, playing Katamari, and Overwatch on my new TV, but it's all way better than it would have been uh, just a few days ago. So that's making me happy. I am so glad that that's out, because for so long there was no way to play that game on anything even remotely modern. You either had to go get an actual PS2, or maybe if you had a PS3, you could download the, the PlayStation Classics version yeah. and that game is so it holds up so brilliantly well it, and it's there's no reason that it shouldn't be ported to everything so i'm glad they finally yeah, and i don't think they changed anything I, i'm i'm assuming there's some changes somewhere in it but um so far i haven't really noticed anything and yeah, i didn't really being widescreen i don't I, from what i've yeah. seen i don't see any major changes yeah. i really hope that this does really well for them and that they also port the second uh katamari yeah. game, we heart katamari which i think gets a little even lower profile i don't even think you can download that one on the ps3 so you're really just limited to ps2 on that one and it's just as good i'm playing it right now on my ps2 it's it's fantastic i and it's it's the that one and the first one are the only ones that were directed by uh kita takahashi um after that he kind of left the series and uh konami kind of mess it up with some of the later sequels but those two games are stellar yeah i don't think i ever played that one yeah i hope it this is a katamari revolution and we see more katamari games on the switch yeah i would love to see a brand new katamari game on the switch but failing that yeah maybe a, maybe a remake of uh, we heart katamari to bring it to the people that missed that one that's fine it's a good start. Yeah. So thank you guys so much for joining us on this episode of The Short Game. We're about to roll over to our spoiler section, which will probably be pretty short just to chit-chat a little bit about some of the things that are spoilery but really cool about Obra Dinn. Um, but before we do, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, if you want to recommend a game to the show, uh, you can almost all the games we play on the show are based on our listeners recommending things. Uh, there have been a lot of cool new indie games announced even very recently here. So if you are tracking something that's been announced and you want to make sure we cover it right away when it comes out, let us know. We like to plan ahead. Um, uh, you can let us know either on our website, www.theshortgame.net, where we've got a contact form, or you can go to Twitter at underscore short game. It's a good way to reach out to us with quick messages. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Reagan K. That's R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. And of course, please do leave us iTunes reviews. Uh, we always appreciate them. And on that, Reagan, thank you for bringing it up because, uh, you know, this is always one of my favorite things to do here at the end of the show. I've got two 
reviews that I've not talked about on the on the show, and I'm I'm you know we're we're very grateful for people who take time out of their lives to write nice things to us. It is something that we share within our Slack. We talk about them. Uh, we share with friends, family. Get them tattooed. We just do all sorts of great things with these. I'm doing uh, a cross stitch. It's, uh, it's great. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, first one, I want to give a shout out to Daniel Talski, whose subject was Nate, 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 Nate. Uh, I hope I got the uh, way I print. I hope I got that, like how you wrote it in your head, Daniel. Um, and this is a continuation of. I don't know why this has started, but people having me say my own name during these things. And you know what? <laughs> I love it. If you, if this is what, if this is what is driving you to go out and write, uh, nice reviews for the show is making me say my own name in the subject, then go for it. Now he does go on to say some very, very nice things. It's a whole long review. So thank you, uh, Daniel. Super appreciate it. Um, we really do. And then we got another one. That is pretty wild. Uh, it, it makes, I don't know, whenever we've had a few like this, but not this far. Um, this one comes from PS Candid from Russia. Yeah, we don't actually, uh, I don't always check those other stores, but I do occasionally get an email from a little service that tells me when, a, when a, one of the uh, um, overseas iTunes stores gets a review. And this one came in, it was all in Cyrillic characters and I had to Google translate it. So apologies for the terrible, probably machine translation on this one, but we really appreciate the review. Yeah. And, um, calls out some of the games that we've recommended, uh, like Pyre and far loan sales that, um, PS candid would go to play. And I just, you know, we, we are in podcast here so often just sort of like shouting into the void. And that's part of why we love, reviews is to know that it's like people are listening and people appreciate it and people like it. And whenever somebody from like Russia or we, I know we had one from like London or something like that, which, uh, you know, it just, it blows my mind that we have people who are listening, uh, that are literally all over the world. So thank you, PS candid. And thank you, Daniel. And to whoever uh, wants to leave us a review and make me, um, gush and say silly things, go for it. Uh, whatever you write, we'll talk about it. I think I, I might have to pull that back a little bit if you get crazy, but I think there's filters on iTunes reviews. So don't go too crazy. <laughs> what would blow your mind more a review from someone on the exact opposite side of the globe or a review from your next door neighbor you've never met? It's a great question. I'm going to say other side of the world because there's like, they speak a different language. <laughs> also, I know most of my neighbors and like, it wouldn't surprise me that much if they listen to video game podcasts. Some cool Shout out people. to neighbors. Yeah. Well, thank you again. I already mentioned myself, Laura, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at Laura J Nash on Twitter and Instagram too. Nice. You want to see random pictures of places I was six months ago. Cause I never post in a timely manner. Shane, where can people find you? All over the internet at 8BitShane. And Nate, where can people find you? You can find me at NateSTL. And for those of you sticking with us, here it is, your spoiler break. So for those who were like, spoiler break, I'll hang out. We're about to wreck some of the best surprises in the game, so actually turn it off. But for those of you with us, Oh my god, tentacle monsters and crab people. Like what? this is great.
Yeah, okay, so I was totally expecting lots of murder, right? I mean, this is 60 people dead on a boat, and the very first one is a mutiny. So, like, of course there's going to be a mutiny, right? And an illustration, like, shows someone, like, being hung, so you assume, and getting shot by a firing squad, so you you knew that was going to happen. Right, right. Not, like, people getting decapitated by claws on their necks. Right. Two people at the same time. Was probably my favorite death. I oh, mean, yeah. there were some gruesome deaths, but that was one of the like. It opened up, and I was just like, "Oh fuck yes!" Yeah. Oh man. So so the the biggest first moment that I was like, "Oh wow, this game is going places I was not expecting." Was like you. There's the the, the chapter the doom, and it opens with like, "Oh man, uh, a storm at sea. Uh, this is going to be dramatic. People are going to be swept overboard. It's wait, is that a tentacle?" Oh my god! It's a kraken. It's a kraken, and I was like, I was so excited when I saw that because I was like, oh man, I was I was not expecting this game to go in that direction, but it totally does. And like, we've got we've got krakens, we've got weird, creepy, scary mer people ladies, we've got weird crab soldier people, like, and we got magical shells and stuff, like tons of of weird stuff that. I thought made made the whole game a lot more interesting, a lot a lot more fun to uh, to figure out. Okay, was this person killed with a gun, or did they get their head cut off by a crab? Like that's fun. That's way more fun than just figuring out sixty different murders over I don't know pay or something. Like that's so much more exciting. And I was really happy because uh, when you start exploring the ways you could die, uh, you do have the option of um, a terrible beast. And after the Kraken scene, I kind of thought, okay, we're like done with the terrible beasts. Like it all culminates in great terrible beasts. And then I, nope, there are more terrible beasts. And then later on, you're like, and more terrible beasts on lifeboats. Like <laughs> yep. I get to see these terrible beasts in beautiful 360 shots. From, you know, shooting uh, spears and spiking people and decapitating people. And I just, I loved the amount of just crazy doom that these people unleashed upon themselves. The Ark of the Covenant burning people. It's not the Ark of the Covenant, but it might be. Very similar thing. Yeah. There's just so much craziness that I was not expecting. So I have one thing that I'm still a little unclear on from the plot. And I I thought I'd ask, maybe you picked it up and I, I... just skimmed over something or something. So, so obviously the, the whole sort of uh, weird shit era of the, of the, the Obra Dinn began with that group of people leaving the ship uh, and going and getting the, like when they were on their way, they were getting some kind of a treasure. And then when they were coming back, they were attacked by those mer people, right? So what what I'm what I'm unclear about is like I'm kind of un, it doesn't really tell you much about like what their motivations were or what was going on in that chapter. So like I was really unclear about like where they went to get that treasure, like where that came from, and like why they were coming back. Like I kind of got the vibe that they were they turned back because they were being attacked. Like were they planning on going back? Because I got the impression that they weren't authorized to go. Like I, I don't I don't I'm kind of missing some details in that chunk. Did, did that, did that whole section make sense to you? Yeah. So to me, like the overarching thing was, um, uh, the Formosan royalty steal the shells and the arc thing. And then, uh, they 
uh, it summons like all those beasts, you know, ends up summoning Kraken. Like that's kind of when the deaths like super escalate and that summons the Kraken. And then the captain starts killing the things to get off. Uh, the surgeon killed yeah. the monkey because he had a pocket watch or something. I, I think like the surgeon needed to see what happened in the past. So he killed the monkey um, and in the bargain chapter. And, um, but a lot of it just seemed to be like, it, it actually, it's really linear. I think after you get everything, but, yeah. um, well, you can go but, if you want afterwards, kind of go through it in, in, uh, chronological order. And some of that really helps. Like I, it really put some of the details together for me to go back and watch scenes that I had previously watched in reverse order in chronological order. And things would make sense in a way that they didn't before. But I'm still a little unclear on some of the stuff there. I feel like I need to go and watch some YouTube or something and see if somebody has some analysis of that part of the plot. It's a little little unclear there. Yeah, why Henry Evans killed the monkey to be able, like, did he have, like, he had the pocket watch. I think we found out later that the surgeon ended up sending the book back, mm-hmm. which helped. Um, but, like, the fact that he killed a monkey to get back into the past and, like, so he sent you the book. Like the meta things outside of the book is what I found confusing. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was honestly very surprised that the ending was kind of, it wasn't weak. It just was very normal. <laughs> um, it was nice to know how the captain um, stopped the Kraken and stopped the doom and stuff like, but it was um, to me, like, I, I think it made sense. You're just like, yep, you found some artifacts. It rose a Kraken. Then, we I have to died, kind of like but... say that the, the last chapter, you know, after you've completed the initial kind of portion of the book and you go home and then you get that monkey's paw in the mail, that, that ending portion, I was expecting more out of that ending. Um, like I was expecting some, there were some things revealed there that did shed some light on why things happened. Cause it is sort of in the middle of the story, that sort of hidden chapter. But I was kind of expecting more from that chapter. And I think if I have one criticism about the game, it might be that I would have liked an ending that kind of summed up better. Uh, I don't know what that would have looked like. I was initially kind of expecting some kind of like, once you get through the very end of the game, I was expecting it to somehow like flash back and play you the events of the, of the thing in order or, something like that to kind of give you more context over overall rather than just sort of that ending sort of just colored in a few details that were really just towards the middle. They did shed some light, but they were almost incidental to a lot of the other stuff that happened before and after. Yeah. And, and I think some of the chest tracking could have been clear. I mean, like you can go in a seed and you see that the Formosans have a chest with one shell in it, mm. but then the second mate like has it in the ship later and is like, I think I, they do I probably three shells. I think there were three. Yeah. And then there were they? three shells. Yeah. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, once you, uh, uh, like, you know that how it got solved, but you know, nef- like when are there three shells? When are there one? Like at that point, we had been revisiting a lot of stuff to figure out deaths. And I wasn't going to go back and rewatch every scene to figure out like when, the shells were on the ship and when they weren't. Yeah. Apart from the ending though, like I don't think there's anything that I would point to as something that really needs tweaking or improvement on this. Everything was super polished. I mean, four and a half years of development, like it shows, I I think I actually played, um, there was an early, uh, 
like an early development demo of this game that he took around to mm-hmm. festivals and stuff. And I think I played it like three years ago and it was, it was, it was one of the um, uh, day of the devs events. And I mean, I, I was already very excited because obviously like he'd, he'd been uh, uh, kind of quiet since the release of uh, papers, please, which was such a massive success. Um, and then when I went to go play it, I initially like the, the demo was just basically the the intro of the game with discovering the um, uh, the details about the the captain. And if you just play that portion, and there were some differences too between that version of the game and what eventually got released. But like if you just play that portion of the game, um, it doesn't it didn't do much for me. It seemed kind of like uh, like it was like it was going to end up being pretty linear because you at this, that point really only have one person to discover. And so I was kind of expecting it to be a lot more early on. I was expecting it to be a lot more just sort of like a walking simulator with cool graphics, you know, no question there, but I was expecting to just sort of sort of like gone home, except everyone's dead, mm-hmm. uh, gone home on a boat with dead people. And I'm so glad it wasn't that and that it was this thing that I didn't know I wanted. It's like, it's, it was so intricate. I, I was just so impressed with it. Yeah. I, this game would be a whole lot worse if it was told in linear order. <laughs> yeah, it very much would. I, I mean, the meta story that, you know, although I'm still clear on some of the details, the, the meta story really is super interesting and it's fun that you can be working on two different levels something individual and that the game does not make it contingent on you figuring out what actually is going on it's kind of her story ish in that way where there's lots of little things to figure out but like you are not you know it doesn't quiz you on whether or not you think that the shell was on the ship at the beginning or not like that doesn't really matter to finishing even getting the good ending um, which for the record we, we got, um, yes. we did solve all of the, all of the deaths. Yes. And I would add without really looking up any hints, I was very proud of us. I think we did look up yeah. one thing where we were, we were like trying to figure out, I think the, probably the most challenging one is the, uh, the Chinese topman. There are mm-hmm. four of them and they, their names, as far as I know, are, are like never uttered in the game. No. So there's no way to figure out which Chinese topman is which. Um you have to put it together from some really subtle clues and we kind of got it, but I think we ended up looking up a hint at that point and it mostly ended up just sort of confirming for us that we were looking for the right info. We thought there was more information than we were getting and then we looked up a hint and it was please look for the clue you already have. Yeah. So like we did try to cheat, and then we were like, oh, I guess we're just supposed to guess them one by one, which we did. Which worked, um, just fine. It worked. But um, I, I think we thought there was more information hidden than there actually was. Yeah, I saw a lot of people online have trouble with the Chinese Topman, and uh, if you are having that trouble, and I mean, you're in the spoiler break section, so we're going to spoil it. Uh, the biggest help was the numbers hanging on everybody's bunks. And matching that up with their shoes, which is really hard when their shoes are like one bit dithered and all basically look the same except one dude's. And and here's why I looked at the hint is because like three of the shoes just look like black shoes and one of them is distinctive. And we thought there were distinctive features in the other three black shoes that we were like just looking and looking and looking for. And we yeah. couldn't figure that 
Um, so we looked it up and then there, everyone was like, look for the white shoes. And we're like, oh, we already got we that. We already got that guy's shoes. We got that one. But yeah, that was tricky. But man, uh, once we did sort of, the other thing that we ended up doing a lot of towards the end of the game was that sort of, uh, you know, we know we've got, uh, you know, we've got two people in the, uh, in the uh, book written in that we know are pretty much sure about. And then we would just say, okay, well now let's try some Chinese top men. And eventually if you know, you've got two in that are, that you're sure about, and you have another one where you've got a few different options you want to try, you can just cycle through them until one of them gets typewritten in and you're like, then it'll land for you. So you can, you can guess and get a confirmation as long as you've got a couple people already entered that you're pretty sure about. And that, that was really helpful towards the end of the game. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that, um, you know, we def we had a little bit where we had to, you know, I actually was like, I am tired. I have an early morning. I'm going to bed and Reagan brute forced like a death. Yeah. Um, I am so sorry to have kept you up so late playing this game before you had something to do. Uh, it's okay. Um, I thought I only had an hour worth of work to do in the morning. And then I like looked out and they were like, Oh, sorry. In the morning we scheduled another like three meetings. So the time I was supposed to do something I had procrastinated on was taken up. So I stayed up way late and then got up way early, but it was fine. It was fun. Yeah. Um, it was fun. Uh, yeah. That final, that final one that we were, we were so stuck on for so long. That one was really tricky. What was that guy's name again? I don't remember. Um, Joe, so, I don't remember, but the guy, the guy who got spiked and then spent several sort of scenes crawling around spiked and then crawled off and died someplace. And we had him down as spiked yeah. for basically the entire game. But then it turned out, oh, no, he was dying from the spikes. But then he actually was killed by a stray bullet coming through the wall. And uh, that took me so long to discover. Well, we had just kept changing. We thought his name was wrong. And then literally everybody else was identified. Yeah, uh, like, it we has like, to well, be his name. And clearly he's spiked. But it just turned out, no, he was just he was just really unlucky. He got killed in two different ways. Yes. So um, ultimately, though, I think it was really the nice thing about playing with someone else, though, is you can also um, keep trying different tactics. Mm, um, yeah. You can keep mixing it up. You can take breaks, stuff you can't. Uh, you know, people will keep moving forward. Yeah. And that's also the answer for like in real life puzzle hunts is often like if you're getting frustrated on a puzzle, like go take a bathroom break and come back. And chances are the other people working on it will have done something. <laughs> so helps. Yeah, well, thank you so much for playing it with me. This actually worked out so much better than I expected. We've never really done the, like, play a game together over Skype video streaming before with, like, screen sharing. Um, but it actually was a lot of fun and worked out super well for this game. So, you know, it, listeners, if you don't have anybody to play this with locally, but you do have somebody uh, who you could Skype in and share your screen with and play it, that actually worked out great for this game. I, you know, it's not an action game, so some smeary motion or compression artifacts or whatever didn't really ruin the experience. And uh, as long as you can work out some way to share your audio from your computer with them, as well as the screen share, uh, which I did with Audio Hijack on my Mac, but there's probably other ways to do it. Um, if you can figure out a way to do that, it works out great. It's a really fun game to play, even over the internet with another person. Yeah. I'm sure there's going to be lots of uh, let's plays on this, but again, the sad thing about doing a let's watching someone do a let's play is it is a hundred percent spoiler. It it's will spoil a hundred percent. The entire for you. like you just can't play the game if you watch a let's play. So yeah, uh, it's one I recommend that. Um, yeah, I don't recommend 
yeah, I mean, this is a game that's worth playing yourself because the whole yeah. point is just discovering the intricacy of this puzzle and it's it's amazing. So uh, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Short Game. If you stuck in, stuck around past the spoiler break, we appreciate you. Uh, and hopefully we'll see you soon for another episode of The Short Game. We are open for hints. If you listen to the spoiler break and heard all of this and are still stuck, but also the internet exists. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next week. Bye.